let's get started. And I'm going to throw this question to Henry. <laughs> Henry, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say Beethoven piano sonatas? Life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Honestly, that was the first word that just came to my mind. Yeah, I would say life just because uh, they encompass so many, so millions of emotions. Mm. And yeah. That's wonderful. Does anybody else have one word that comes to mind when I say Beethoven piano sonatas? I would say structure. Mm. Extraordinary, extraordinary variety of structure as well. I, I truly appreciate uh, the constructive abilities in Beethoven. And I think uh, this is one of the features he hugely influenced everybody after him. So uh, I, I, cannot, uh, I cannot take the, um, the word that Henry already used. <laughs> but I think other than just the spirit of life, the structure is probably the secondary most important thing that comes to mind. I agree. Anybody else have a one word or one thought that comes to mind when I say Beethoven piano sonatas? Yeah. Um, to kind of piggyback off of what Henry was saying, I maybe journey. I, I would go with journey. Or if you want to cheap, lifelong journey. <laughs> um, and I, I think, you know, we start from the beginning sonatas to the late, to the end. He drastically changes his compositional style because politically, um, personally, socially, everything that has changed, and I just, I just see that, and it's an evolution of, of style, of his creative spirit and energy, and it, it's, and it's so incredibly embodies the humanistic spirit. I mean, we look at one eleven, we look at the lyricism in one ten, and we look at uh, all the kind of torment and anguish in the middle period with the. The big war horses like uh, Opus fifty three and fifty seven. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a lifelong journey. Anyways, oh, gosh. wonderful. I'm going to move on to my my next sort of topic. Um, Michelle, you teach a lot in the Netherlands, and um, <laughs> you teach and perform a lot in the Netherlands. And I'm wondering if you were going to send a student. And Daniel, you're going to get this question next too. <laughs> if you were going to send a student to listen to any complete set of Beethoven sonata recordings, to whom would you recommend them to listen, and why that version? Oh my oh, God! Too much pressure. Too much pressure. Um, <laughs> I love Rendell uh, because of the, the clarity, articulation. I mean, just his his whole con conception of the. I don't know. Every time I listen to him, I feel like I get a new understanding of how it, the form should be. I'm someone who's like, um, I'm more, much more a detailed person than the overall form structure. So it's really helpful for me to listen to interpretations where I can kind of sense like the overall architecture of a piece. And I find with his playing, I can really get in like an, an overall view of how the piece is rather than getting stuck in the specific notes, if that makes sense. <clears throat> And uh, Daniel, you have been teaching at the Cleveland Institute of Music, and I was lucky enough to have a lesson with you when you came to play in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, and you're just a fantastic teacher and performer. And so I'm really curious, when you, when you assign a Beethoven sonata to your students, or they come to you wanting to learn a sonata, whose recordings do you recommend? Well, actually, I tell them not to listen to any recordings at all, as a matter of fact. 
Uh, <laughs> I tell them for any composer, they should uh, study the music itself uh, and build that relationship between score and performer uh, because uh, there are great artists who have made bad recordings or uh, and so on and so forth. And one is unconsciously, you know, influenced in some way by listening to somebody else play and one should develop one's own train of thought. Having said that, overall, uh, I would probably send my students to listen to Archer Schnabel uh, because I feel that even, I mean, you know, He's one of the greatest Beethoven players, and uh, you know one may quibble with this detail or that detail, but the essential spirit of Beethoven uh, is there, I think, for me in his playing more than anybody. Uh, and when you listen to his playing, you feel stimulated and ennobled, and you feel wiser, and you feel more like a human being. And I think that's what Beethoven was after. <laughs> I agree. Um... David, growing up, were there recordings of Beethoven you listened to that you now recommend to your students? Well, you know, uh, Professor Shapiro stole my stole my. <laughs> Sorry. I, the thunder. <laughs> the reason why I think uh, you know, reasonable to suspect that a number of us on this panel, if not broadly, would would go for such novels. And I mean, he, he was uh, his influence uh, can't be underestimated, um, if for no other reason than. That uh, he was the first, and he was also uh, one of the major pianists to make his own edition. Uh, I think for for the better part of half a century was the one that most serious people would would learn from. You know, so it was really his ideas. It's a very detailed edition. I'm sure people here are familiar with it, with just very poetic instructions, uh, really in the spirit of. For instance, like the edition of the Bach Preludes and Fugues that's published by Buzzoni in, in the late 19th century, totally, utterly polemical, his own subjective personal viewpoint, and no apology about that. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Um, my next question is for Sean. Um, <laughs> so Sean, um, before we dive into how piano music changed after Beethoven, what are some of his innovations to piano writing? You're asking me that because when you were asking about the uh, uh, the one word, and, and I was thinking evolution, and then Frank said it, so I agree wholeheartedly with him about that. And I think uh, we're so used to hearing Beethoven sonatas that we hear, you know, we hear 111, we hear Moonlight, we hear Appassionata, and we go, okay, you know, we've heard it five million times, it seems normal, but if you, if you think about it, if you look at the music, if you really compare what's what he wrote versus what was being written at the time, it's like so, I mean, shocking in a way what he does with not only not only the things that shock us now, like registration, you know, dissonances, but even just form, like, like Asiya was talking about, this just weird experimentation form, you know, Opus 27 number one starts off with a variation rondo thing you know and, and things like that so um so i think those are you know some of the innovations are in his experimentation of of form and structure and pushing the boundaries there um i think pianistically what he had in a way that modern composers don't have is an ever-changing instrument i mean the piano was still changing at, at the time during his life and so every time something new came out he could 
you know, write some new sonorities or, or new registers and new, uh, new ranges on the piano. So for example, in Opus 101, when he hits that low E, he's so, you know, he's really happy about it. He writes contra E um, at, the, at the bottom. And so, you know, things like that, that I think uh, we don't really benefit from. We have a piano that's stayed the same for over a hundred years now, pretty much. And so we're used to it, but uh, I think that's one of the cool things is going through Beethoven's sonatas and kind of seeing at what point he discovers something new in terms of the piano sonority and how he puts it into his sonatas. That's so true. And um, I think his pianists were just so lucky to have a survey of his complete compositional life from beginning with the F minor dedicated to Haydn all the way to Opus 111, which certainly must be the closest to an ascent to heaven that we can hear. Um, so we're so lucky to have that. Um, now, our, our panelists are really exceptional performers who have been on international stages and the number of countries that all of them have performed in is so numerous. So I have a really funny, awkward, embarrassing question. Do any of you have any funny stories or harrowing tales of playing a Beethoven sonata under duress or any funny story about playing Beethoven that the audience might get a good chuckle from? <laughs> Or well, students? I, I, I personally try not to be under duress for any performance, but you know. Um, <laughs> no funny Beethoven sonata I, stories. I, well, if you will, they allow... might, they're never they're never funny when. If you will allow a piece that's not a sonata, I can tell a story about Emperor Concerto. Yes, and, and you can you can you can go and listen to the YouTube video. You can hear it. Um, during the Clyburn finals, uh, played Emperor, and in development, the orchestra goes da ba da ba ba da, and then the pianist comes in with a chromatic scale. And I came in, I think, a beat early or half a beat early, and I get to the top of the chromatic scale. I'm like, oh, they're not done yet, so I just repeated the top of the chromatic scale one more time, and I was like, okay, now I'm there. <laughs> so that was that was. That's uh, it's that's great. the mark of a true virtuoso well yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. you know it's sort of a adapt and overcome kind of thing it is <laughs> um and actually that's the first time that i i heard sean not the actual concerto performance but was in the Clyburn of 2013 um, and uh it was an interesting time my my grandmother had had just passed away and um, it was in June and the Clyburn was wrapping up and I'd been watching and watching and following and uh, Sean's performance of Bach. Sean, I think you played either a partita or French suite. And um, it just... Oh, French suite. Uh... Mm -hmm. And it just really kind of was part of the healing process and my cousins were listening along too and, you know, they thought, oh, this music thing, it's not so bad after all. <laughs> um, all right. Well if, if I can, if I can, I mean, we're talking about Beethoven, I think for him, music was, uh, you know, he was creating, but it was also healing for him. Mm -hmm. And especially after he found out uh, his was going, you know, we all know about the uh, Heiligenstadt test well, or continue. I was just going to say going on that idea, connecting it back to Beethoven's piano writing, I think, as Sean said, part of it is the instruments were changing, but I think it's also the spirit of the music is, I don't think before him we really have a 
composer who's transcending the idiom the way Beethoven does with the piano, like kind of a disregard for the instrument and the performer in the service of, of what it, the ideal of the music is. And I think for me, when I play Beethoven, I feel that physicality and the awkwardness of it. And I think, you know, even specifically, you could look at the different varieties of Alberti basses he comes up with. It's so varied. Well, and excruciating. <laughs> Yeah, and excruciatingly difficult, you know, I'm thinking immediately of the ending of the first movement of the a fourth cello sonata, but and and I think part of the the way the music feels and and that kind of relationship to the instrument goes into the expression. Like when you hear Beethoven that sounds effortless the way you would maybe want to hear Chopin played. It's it somehow is missing that that feeling of pushing beyond the, the purely physical realm that the music is produced in. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we have some people on this panel who are transcribing music a lot. So I want to throw this out to Asiya first. Um, so my question is, what are some examples of pieces that are directly influenced by Beethoven? Any transcriptions? And why are these works important in and of themselves? And I know Asiya has been transcribing and Sean too, and I'm going to Throw this to Asiya first, and then they can kind of bounce back about the transcription topic. <laughs> One, you know, to me, uh, when I think about the genre of transcription, and it's been like this my entire life for me, I think of Liszt transcriptions of Beethoven symphonies. And I just thought that the concept of Beethoven really, really stretching the abilities of what can be done on the instrument and expanding that. And then Liz taking over and expanding it further and now representing not just like a completely new era of pianism and playing and abilities on the piano, but okay, now we're jumping from just doing the purely piano pieces now we're replicating an orchestra on mm-hmm. on the instrument and so the work that list done on on beethoven symphonies and not just beethoven symphonies and other symphonic works as well uh really opened a new door to the whole genre of not only i'm i'm playing like a, a nice folk tune with accompaniment or i'm transcribing a a, a, a little song from uh a song setting like a vocal setting to the to the solo setting but now i'm just taking a whole orchestral piece and just merging it and blending it to fit my hands and uh in this regard it is difficult for me to pinpoint like one piece that was influenced by that because it's just the whole thing i think if i've never knew that list transcribed beethoven symphonies for piano i would never think of like i don't know i'm right now working on uh, manfred symphony by tchaikovsky and i'm referencing list's work a lot in that and uh you know when you think about ninth symphony of beethoven and the range it represents and still thinking okay there was one dude who actually fit in the two hands well then that means i can probably dare to do something like that too so um so yeah it's a it's a whole genre i guess that's wonderful um sean you um We'll get Sean to unmute. <laughs> um, we admire of Sean's transcriptions, by the way. <laughs> yes, Sean, your Symphony Number no. Nine transcription is recently recorded. I believe it was at, at a performance at St. Olaf's. Uh huh. 
And um, you also were recently live with that yes. on Facebook. Yes. Can you tell us about your process for that transcription? It's amazing. Oh, thank you. No, um, so I, because of lists, you know, big influence in transcriptions, any transcriptions, whenever, and I agree with us, yeah, anytime I do a transcription, I'm thinking of, at least thinking of, if not actually looking at how he's doing certain passages, you know, you, you can hear the orchestra version, and you can see what he's doing to try to recreate that effect. Um, my, so, so I read the list version first because I was asked to play the list version. And I, so, so my theory is any audience member nowadays has heard Beethoven 9 more than Liszt ever heard in his life. I mean, we hear it every year, multiple times, not to mention recordings and things like that. So we, in a way, have a better idea of how it sounds, I think, than Liszt did. I mean, even if you didn't study the score, if you're just a casual listener, I think you know the piece better than Liszt knew sonically, not, not compositionally. Um, I think, uh, th so that's one consideration. Second consideration is there has been scholarship done since Liszt that have uncovered certain performance indications and things like that uh, by Beethoven that weren't in the publications at that time. So some do doublings um, are not in the list version, which are in you know, modern editions uh, and things like that, some note discrepancies. So there's that. And uh, the third is uh, he actually made the last movement of the Ninth Symphony transcription later than the first three movements. And you can actually tell if you play through it, the style of transcription is different. It's, in my opinion, less maximal than the first three movements. First three movements, he kind of, it's like the Tanhoi's Overture. He puts everything in there, the, all the doublings and all the, you know, it's really, really kind of amazing. And somehow when he gets to the fourth movement, he kind of, it's, it's almost like when we talk about the you know, late style of composers, they kind of actually go away. You know, they, they parse it down and it's a little bit simpler and they leave out stuff they don't really need. Um, and for me, when I played through it, I felt actually like a lot of stuff that I was listening for was missing, or he was bringing out some of the uh, the voices that I didn't actually expect him to bring out. So I kind of, my purpose in making my arrangement was just to bring it more in line with what I am used to hearing, whether that's, you know, um, what Beethoven actually heard or thought of when, when he wrote his pieces, in a way, not something that we should try to figure out. We, we should just go with what we're used to hearing and try to translate that to the piano. As, that's my kind of philosophy for transcription is almost like uh, playing by ear, you know, trying to, trying to transcribe this way, or orally. So that's my spiel about transcription. And if you, to our audience, if you have not heard Sean's transcription of the last movement of the Ninth Symphony, um, make your day better, make your week better, make your month better, go listen to it. It is phenomenal. Um, now, the next question, that I have, I'm going to preface with a little anecdote. In 2017, I was um, on vacation for spring break in Southern California, um, beautiful SoCal. And um, a friend of mine that I was visiting um, was studying at the University of Southern California with Jeffrey Kahane. And my friend texted me and said, do you want to come to studio class? You can meet my professor. And I was like, that's scarier than meeting parents. But sure, I'll come along. So there I was off to studio class of Jeffrey Kahane. I had no business being in this room with these people. Like I wanted to go to Disneyland. Um, <laughs> so I ended up going to the class and he's like, oh, you must be the Canadian. 
I'm like, yes, that's one of my labels. So the first performance um, was a sonata by Beethoven. I hadn't heard yet. Um, and I, you know, I've listened to quite a bit of music um, from my nonprofit work and just as a piano teacher. And the performer played Opus 78. And I just wept. <laughs> and I had never heard something so exquisite. And, um, you know, uh, Professor Kahane's comments after were just so gentle. And he just thanked the person for sharing that day because there was really nothing constructive to say. It was like, thank you for sharing how to play Beethoven. Um, and so that was the first time I heard a sonata by Beethoven that I hadn't heard before. And it really struck me. Um, because we all grow up hearing Moonlight, Appassionata, Pathetique, 109, 110, 111. We all grew up hearing these. So my question, um, maybe I'll throw this to Michelle. Um, Michelle, what's your underappreciated or underplayed sonata by Beethoven that you think the world should hear? Uh, I don't know. The first thing that comes to mind is, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe you've all heard this a thousand times. Times, but 10-3 for me, I mean, the opening, I, I learned it when I was younger and I think it was my first introduction to kind of, I love that word that Henry used, life. And I think the spirit of Beethoven, it was the, the first time I really grasped the possibilities, I think, in hearing that opening. So maybe it's not the, the most, the best. I mean, I don't really know how you can choose. I think as everyone here is explaining, like all of the sonatas bring something different to the element of Beethoven. Like, it's, it's a huge mosaic of who he is. And that's only, of course, one element of his work. Of course, that's not even talking about his orchestral works. So um, yeah, for me, that's what comes to mind, just the joy of that opening phrase and thinking like, wow, this is the spark of possibility. That's wonderful. Um, Henry, why do you think Moonlight, Appassionata, and Pathetique have kept their popularity for so long? What is it about these that keeps us entranced? They have titles. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually half joking, but I think the publishers knew what they were doing by giving pieces titles. Um, you know, because I wouldn't, I, I don't think there's any reason one is better than, than another, you know. Uh, if we take Beethoven's sonatas, like you just said, Opus 78 doesn't have a title, but, you know, could be an equally wonderful piece. I mean, popular piece in the in the zeitgeist that still lives on today. Um, but I think also people love a um, a finale and and those sonatas really deliver in that way. Uh, I, the way they're structured really weights the excitement um toward the end of the piece so you know that could be something that people just respond to the rhythmic the kind of raw rhythmic power that we get with those sonatas uh i'm not talking of course about pathetique here but maybe in the first movement that that kind of quiet intensity that is you know the face of Beethoven, I think, in popular conception of who he was mm -hmm. as a person, you know. I would like to add also that Waldstein sonata, at least in Russia, we grow up. We know that sonata not as Waldstein sonata, we know that sonata as Aurora. 
we call that Sonata Aurora, and it represents the rising sun in the in the last movement, and kind of like twilight in the in the in the middle section, middle uh, little movement, and it also makes perfect sense, and it very very much uh, supports the idea that you know titles mean a lot because everybody's just like oh Aurora, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> uh, which is. Uh, Exactly as uh, Jennifer was saying, uh, there are other sonatas who are capable of capturing us immediately and, and really, really uh, touching us very deeply. But somehow they are on a little bit kind of behind these few because they don't have really uh, exact titles. And it's much more difficult for people to describe it. Just like, oh, this sonata, uh, uh, Opus 78. <laughs> like not, not everybody would be able to describe it this way. Could be Aurora too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, just a quicker one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to um, send our next question to, to Daniel Shapiro. Uh, Daniel, you've done a lot of work on Brahms and Schubert lately. Um, and so our conversation was initially going to be about the shadow of Beethoven. And we haven't talked about the composers after Beethoven, which kind of indicates to me that my thesis about him having a big shadow is true. But Daniel, can you talk about how um, Schubert and Brahms are both influenced by Beethoven? Well, they both, of course, worshipped him. Uh, and uh, Schubert, you know, there are many famous quotes from Schubert about the greatness of Beethoven. Uh, and Brahms sort of felt the weight of Beethoven on his shoulders, and uh, there's the famous story of why it took him so long to write his first symphony, because he felt that weight of Beethoven, and to write a symphony that could stand alongside Beethoven was a huge challenge for him. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think, especially for Brahms, just such mastery of form, uh, he was a synonym of, of what I see I use, or, or structure or architecture, uh, you know, it took Brahms was striving all his life uh, to work in that uh, dimension. Uh, and of course, uh, Beethoven was alive for most of Schubert's life. Uh, and so it really felt the weight of the, uh, the gravitational pull of Beethoven. Uh, but yet Schubert re managed to uh, find his own completely different voice. I mean, you see traces of Beethoven's influence and even some modeling certain forms of Beethoven. You know, it's been said that the last movement of the D959 sonata is loosely based on the last movement of Opus 31, number one, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but, and so Schubert was uh, deeply, they, they were both composers who were deeply in awe of Beethoven and uh, carried that as, as a weight on their on their shoulders for their entire lives thank you uh, david i have a question for you um does beethoven actually leave a shadow or is this a myth perpetuated music history like is there a real shadow or did people do stuff after beethoven i mean it sounds like a silly question but maybe this is up for debate like you know, we talk about, oh, what could happen after the Ninth Symphony? Even Brahms, like Daniel commented, Brahms said, well, I'm having trouble writing the Tenth. Like, is this a real thing? Oh, unmute. There you go. You're, oh, I think he might still be muted. Um, 
we're going to wait one moment for David to have some sound connected. No problem. <laughs> Frank, what do you think? Um, I absolutely agree with what Daniel just said about, um, I, I do believe, you know, in, especially in the 19th century, composers were having increasing amount of pressure to, you know, to identify with the musical tradition, but also forge their own path, you know, and I think Brahms was um, a great example of that. I think there's a quote that I discovered recently about how Brahms said to a bunch of um, close friends in a private meeting. He said, you know, gentlemen, I'm, I know I'm not Beethoven, but I am Brahms. I'm Johannes Brahms. And, uh, and I really believe he felt that pressure with the famous Beethoven's 10th, Beethoven's 10th symphony. Um, you know, the, the famous story, how they, you know, someone said, Oh, the last movement sound, the last movement of your symphony sounds very similar to Ode to Joy. And then he was very sensitive and snarky about it, actually. You know, <laughs> any ass can see that, you know. And I'm just like, geez, you know. It's but, but I, I really do believe that a lot of composers and musicians following Beethoven really had that kind of pressure. So, I mean, they they all they all found their own way. I agree. Schubert went his own different way, but they both admired and respected Beethoven so much. We know Brahms in in his collection. He collected so many music. So much music of of all of his Germanic predecessors. So I, I do believe um, that that there was that Beethoven overshadowed a lot of the composers, particularly in the nineteenth century. Mm. To uh, me, if I may add one thing, to me it is almost funny how Beethoven's forms and Beethoven's ideas influence so many people, and people who showed the influence such as Brahms did in, to a certain extent, they, they firstly um, showed the influence in terms of keeping that tradition, keeping that form, keeping that integrity of all the elements. But Beethoven, if you look at him, he was somebody who was breaking out of these traditions constantly. He was constantly breaking, breaking, breaking. People who were influenced, they were picking up mostly on the, on the, unified structural uh, part in him because, um, you know, Brahms was, for example, a person who, you know, despised bicycles because they're, they're representing too much of innovation for him. And he didn't like anything modern, anything that, that's like novelty or any, any development that, that signals of a new time. He kind of wanted to really be in the past. And he, to me, kind of tried to, stay in that area that somewhere in his in the back of his head was represented by Beethoven and just dig deeper but not necessarily dig out of of that uh, area or you can call you it know, that. I don't you know, know. Yeah. Uh, go ahead oh no please please you go ahead uh, David you were gonna say something oh. Yes, but I, I, I'm not sure. Oh, now I'm now you can hear me. Okay, good. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I just re responding to to what you had asked, Jennifer. Um, you know, for and this of course rides on what many of you have already said. But um, the figure that uh, Beethoven reminds me most of in sort of general cultural history is Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Beethoven was a big fan of Shakespeare. Um, uh, you might as you might well ask the same question. One might well ask the same question of: Is is theater possible or is literature possible after Shakespeare? 
Um, and of course the answer is yes, but if I think about um, what makes Shakespeare so amazing and what makes him such a shadow, um, it's that uh, his plays have unity of action. They're, they're, they're about one thing, but they somehow also are about everything. You know, that there's a character or a line in, in every Shakespeare play that somehow covers every kind of shade of human existence. I really associate that with Beethoven as well. You know, that um, Asia was talking about the constructive element of Beethoven, the unity, um, and that's what appealed to Brahms, but he certainly, he just had so much breadth as well. I'm not even sure that composers after Beethoven have been bold enough to uh, attempt to have that uh, combination of breadth and specificity. I mean, so few composers even try, you know. Uh, I, I think that's maybe what makes the shadow appear longer uh, than equally, perhaps equally great composers who aren't I, as intimidating. I love the comparison to mm -hmm. literature um, because I think that's something that doesn't happen enough um, is that we, in, in music, we kind of stay in our discipline a lot and getting interdisciplinary and moving beyond the confines of our musical language. So when you said Shakespeare, can there be theater after Shakespeare? I was instantly like, oh, that's the analogy. That's the parallel right there. Uh, I just want to open it up to one last topic because you think about Beethoven's chamber music as well. Does anybody want to comment on how Beethoven changed piano writing for chamber music? I could start. Henry. If that's okay. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think... Um, you know, immediately, I, I, when you look at, for instance, the violin sonatas, these are sonatas for pianoforte and violin, and the piano parts are have much, much greater scope, much um, more expressivity, I think, and play a multitude of roles. And I think Beethoven is maybe continuing where Mozart might have left the door open in specifically the violin sonatas. and. The other thing I wanted to talk about, because yeah, I'm glad to. you brought up chamber music in the violin sonata specifically, because you said one of the topics was misconceptions about Beethoven. And I think one of them is that he's purely instrumental in like the continuation of Haydn. But if we look at the violin sonatas, there's really an operatic component, especially in the slow movements. Um, that I think is underappreciated in Beethoven and actually unlocks a lot of the expressivity and, and the kind of expression one needs to play that music. Um, and that was a real revelation for me in, when I was studying these pieces. Hmm. Anybody else want to talk about Beethoven's piano writing for chamber music? I might... Uh, oh. uh, yes. In a sense, when Beethoven writes a piano sonata, he... I mean, it's true there are operatic elements uh, also, but, but he's writing a kind of symphony for the piano. Uh, and you really feel the sense of the whole orchestra and perhaps singers as well. Uh, and then when he writes chamber music, just the responsibility of that orchestra is to divide it up into two people or three people, but you still feel more than the one or two or three instruments that are being played. There's, there's a kind of a cosmos of sound and richness. Mm, that's wonderful. Um, and I know that we we were supposed to have the Toronto Symphony concertmaster Jonathan Crow um, come to play the complete Beethoven sonatas for us with wonderful Montreal-based pianist Philip Chu. 
Um, and that was canceled, of course, due to this health crisis. But as we were advertising it, um, Professor Jane Coop got on my case for not putting piano and violin. <laughs> so in the description, I got in big trouble. <laughs> um, so I think another aspect of Beethoven's chamber music writing is that the role of the piano is certainly not a compliment. Um, it has accompaniment passages, but uh, like certainly the number of notes that we have and the the prominence of that role has changed as well. Um, and you know, we're talking about opera and I was just thinking about why Fidelio isn't so popular um, and why Beethoven didn't become an opera composer as such, but having heard all of you kind of comment that there are operatic and vocal elements in the instrumental music, I guess that kind of answers our question a bit, um, because that has been one thing I'm curious about for a long time is, you know, Mozart's opera is hugely successful. Um, and I just wondered why Beethoven didn't get that same success. I don't think he had the same financial impetus as other composers. His opera was extremely lucrative field. And Beethoven was one of the first composers to have like full sponsorship and, you know, had one wonderful uh, donors who said, okay, we're going to give you a salary to just compose. And I think that he turned inward and that that's why, that's how we got the late string quartets and the late piano sonatas. And um, yeah, it, it's more opera was very kind of socially a public thing. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know, but that that is an interesting question. Well, the other, maybe that's the, one reason. The other the, one other aspect of of that is that in Vienna, the the public taste towards opera veered very sharply away from Beethoven's style of writing, mm -hmm. um, and during his lifetime. So the 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 rise of popularity of uh, Rossini, um, and the the sort of coming on of the Biedermeier period uh, did not spell. Uh, that was not particularly inviting to Beethoven. Um, so that's another aspect of it too. And I mean, what you say, Henry, I feel is incredibly, uh, is right on the money in terms of his unique status in early 19th century, being the first guy to, to um, be able to do whatever he wanted. Um, but, um, but there's also that taste element too. Mm -hmm. It's true. And there's a third, third aspect to that, same as, you know, everybody, every major violinist and not major as well is playing Beethoven uh, violin concerto the, these days. But at the time of writing, there were certain passages and certain lines that, that were considered unplayable or unhumane. <laughs> and certain, that, that's true about certain lines in the final movement of the Ninth Symphony for the vocalists. That is, it is a, that, that situation that uh when something it doesn't sound as difficult as it is when it's just awkward for uh, for the mechanism of the voice and the same applies to uh, a lot of parts in the uh, fidelia opera and i think that was also influential other than just the heroic uh theme of the opera that was definitely getting out of fashion at the time it was just like too difficult that's the true. singers aren't as masochistic as pianists. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's important to remember that, that Beethoven never heard 
you know, a performance of one of his sonatas in his own lifetime. That the, the whole idea of a public concert was very, what was uh, foreign um, and nothing to do with the contemporary musical culture. So everything that we've been saying about how the sonatas have symphonic scope um, is all the more amazing because it's imbuing that private space that's inside the player and inside the home uh, with that grandeur. Mm -hmm. um, this has been such a wonderful conversation and um, I want to close by inviting Sean to transcribe some of those late quartets. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, well, there is the Beethoven's own transcription of the Grosse Fuga for piano four hands, which is very hard. Yes. Very difficult. And part of the difficulty is just getting out of the way of each other. It's it's like playing Twister on the piano, basically. <laughs> oh, that's so the effort. It's a fantastic uh, version of it to play. Um, I just wanted to mention that um, a lot of people on this panel are doing live stream concerts for us coming up in the month of May and June. Um, so Sean is, Asiya and David and Michelle. Um, so we're going to get those dates coming out to you. And I wanted to give this opportunity to any of our panelists to say if you have any upcoming online events we should follow. Um, anybody have something coming up they want to announce that people can check out? Well, I have an event on Saturday, May 2nd. Uh, I am performing uh, for the concert series in Vashon, where I was supposed to play uh, a live normal concert, but we were switching to the live stream and um, I'm doing a video concert for them on, on Saturday. And I'm playing Beethoven Eroica Variations as an opening piece. So. Oh, I just, I've been playing that this year. It's one of the hardest things I have to play by Beethoven. It's amazing. I have a, I have a question. Yeah, but you know, but you know, I think this is, I think it was Henry that was talking about how, I, I think this piece exemplifies how Beethoven just did not care about, about the pianist. It yes. was just yes. like the, the, sorry, I, I'm so passionate about this because it's <laughs> after the fugue, after all of the finger busting that, that he does. Yeah, and then you're like in the eggshells completely. Yes, but, that's the hardest part in the in the entire piece. It's the it's after the fugue, in my opinion. But yeah. anyway, yeah. sorry, I, I didn't mean to. Cut you off. Oh no, I have a very very important question. Has everybody been learning to tune their own piano? <laughs> I actually, I did a little bit. I, I do a little bit, but I'm not very successful. Actually, I have looked a roommate. it up. Great, totally. Your, your my roommate is a piano technician, so oh, I win my life. No, <laughs> no. that's very nice. <laughs> no, I feel I feel just dreadfully sorry for anybody. I feel so sorry for anybody who has to listen to my piano, if not the pianist. Online. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It's so terribly out of tune. Just feel the vibrations like Beethoven. That's right. <laughs> I was doing an ear training test with one of my students and asking them to identify an interval or something and they got it wrong and they said well your piano tune miss jennifer i have perfect pitch and i was like oh Booyah. <laughs> then you should make them identifying quarter tones and quarter yes quarter exactly <laughs> please <laughs> well i hope one day that um all of these people that we see on the screen can meet for dinner in one of the wonderful cities in the world and talk about 
in real life and talk about music and have a nice bottle or three of wine. Three, <laughs> we'll go with three. Um, so it's it's been such a pleasure, and um, I think this is a testament to Beethoven's music that we have people from all corners of the United States, um, a lonely Canadian polar bear, <laughs> and a Canadian in exile in the Netherlands. <laughs> I guess it's not exile, um, but the fact that. Um, Expat, yes, very different things as we just had Passover. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a testament to the power of Beethoven's music that um, this brings us together for such a rich, warm, entertaining, and enlightening discussion. I think one of my favorite moments was when Henry said, "It's because they have titles." I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm yeah. taking that with me. If someone can take a screenshot of us all, I just did. Can you, you yeah. send that to me, please? Of course, I will. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I want everyone to give us a virtual round of applause for this wonderful discussion. Hey, great to meet everybody who I haven't met in person yet. Yes. This was really fun. This was such a pleasure. Thank you, Jan. Thank Thanks you for organizing this. Thanks for organizing. Yeah, yeah great to meet everyone. Thank you. Yep. thank you to this fellow. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so I wish. I wish all of you a quick return. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Henry, I don't make all any the sense. <laughs> I don't have my baby. <laughs> I wish all of you the very best health, and I wish all of you a return to completely packed concert halls. Um, thank you for. I'll even take empty ones, you know, empty ones. <laughs> I hear that people, David will take empty halls. <laughs> but um, just a reminder to everybody to sign up for your online concert if you haven't already. Um, and we're really excited for that. And David, you have a concert tonight with your wife. Yes. Uh, well, we, we already played it, but it will be um, broadcast tonight. Yeah. Broadcast tonight. Where can yeah. we listen to that? I think on the usual usual places, but the show it's called Living Music Show, okay. hosted by uh, Nadia Sirota. So you're going to be playing composers that like aren't dead? No, it's a very you know heart still beating. Um, Whoa! A composer <laughs> named uh, Timo Andres. It's a piece for flute and piano that he wrote for us, and so we're playing that. Um, and I think uh, Alan Pearson and Alarm Will Sound are doing some uh, some John Luther Adams. Um, uh, it's, it's a really fun show, actually. And, and my wife is going to make the Sydney Opera House out of a napkin. So that you don't want to miss. Okay. Well, I'm there. That's sold. You said Sydney Opera House out of napkins? Yep. yep. <laughs> Very nice. This is wonderful. Um, I hope to see all of you in person within the next couple of years. And thank you so much for your generosity of spirit and time. This was way too much fun. So from Vienna or not. <laughs> thank you to you all and stay safe and have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Bye. 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 Ciao. Ciao.